Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today we're dangerously likely to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Flash floods in Kentucky have now killed 37 with hundreds unaccounted for. In eastern Kentucky, it rained between 8 and 10 and a half inches of rain over the course of two days, with more expected in the following days. Virginia and West Virginia have also declared states of emergencies for several counties in the region. Terrell, this is a horrible and perhaps unexpected tragedy as it is quite difficult to predict floods like this. Do you have anything you would like to add? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, when don't I have anything to add, right? Um, <laughs> but it also hits home for me a little bit. I lived in Kentucky for two years. I traveled that side of the state plenty. Um, and I think it's hard not to bring politics into everything. That's kind of the, the nature of this show. But it's hard not to recognize that climate change, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit more in the main segment, is an issue that will impact everyone. And as the conservative party spent more than two decades diminishing science and saying that these changes to climate weren't going to have any negative impact, we're now seeing those impacts directly on our um, rural communities. And we're seeing the just absolute devastation that these heat spikes can have, um, flash floods, the increased tornadoes, hurricanes, all of these pieces. So my heart goes out to those in Kentucky, um, people I know there who might not have been directly impacted by this flood, but is definitely feeling the pain as um, individuals that live in Kentucky. And I just, I'm intrigued to see if we see a message change or a shift in the understanding of climate change. Yeah, I mean, obviously our hearts go out to the victims and the families of the victims. And I don't know, like, I definitely echo the sentiment that like flash floods themselves are actually, it's hard to attribute climate change to them just because there's just so many factors. And so scientists are like working on it, right? But weather is something that can mostly be pretty attributed to climate change and seeing more extreme weather is definitely something that we have attributed to climate change. And, you know, uh, sometimes flash floods happen once, once in a century, but when they start happening more and more often because of weather things like 10 and a half inches of rain in, in the region, then this is what happens. And this is not the first time. Um, or sorry, this is not the last time that we are going to see uh, uh, kind of climate disasters like this in our own country. And it's just going to, it's going to continue even if we do everything right for the next um, couple decades, at least. And I think it's important too to lean into your point of, yes, rain and flash floods can be hard to link to climate change, but we have to really view this as a series, right? Um the United Kingdom had its hottest year ever this year that we still haven't seen the true ramifications of the impact that that's had on the country. Um, St. Louis had a flash flood not too long after Kentucky or before. Don't quote me on exactly when. Um, 
so as isolated events, yes, it's very easy to make an argument or to have a space that climate change had no impact. This was just a once in a lifetime situation. But when you really look at the totality of these events and these patterns, you can notice that our generation has seen some of the worst climate catastrophes on record. And they can easily be attributed to the increase in CO2 emissions, the um, denigration of our ozone layer, and just the general disregard for what it means to take care of a planet. Let's check out the international folk. Continuing our coverage of the Ukrainian-Russian war, following Zelensky's commitment to honor the shipping agreement we highlighted last episode, the Rosani, carrying 26,000 tons of corn, enjoyed a smooth voyage on Tuesday, reaching Turkish ports later in that day. As the first vessel to depart Ukraine since the tensions began in February, this will help to alleviate the growing food crisis globally. Ukraine is also reporting some 140,000 residential buildings have been destroyed during this conflict, displacing roughly 3.5 million people in the country. Equally heartbreaking, the New York Times reports members of the Ukrainian military are renewing a drive to legalize same-sex marriage in the country out of fear that they could die on the front lines and their partner never be informed. These findings and many more are coming as the United States outline their new sanctions against Russian persons and pledge more funding for Ukrainian forces, pushing the total aid over $8 billion. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to follow the conflict taking place in Ukraine and update you as we learn more. Be sure to check our Facebook and Twitter pages for updates throughout the week. Other major stories around the globe, the United States Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, travels to Taiwan, becoming the highest ranking member of the American government to travel to the country in decades, creating additional strain um, for the United States-Chinese relations. I know normally we don't get into opinions and takes, but do you have anything you want to add to that, Caleb? (laughs) I wasn't expecting to give an opinion on this. (laughs) I don't know how I feel. It feels kind of, I don't know. I I haven't um, read into this issue as much, except that it's kind of a big deal to China. And not that like I necessarily care about what China thinks. I also, it also feels on its surface a little reckless. First, the first, the highest ranking member of the U.S. government to visit in over 25 years. Yep. Why now, Pelosi? Well, I mean, you have to, uh, talking like, about the earlier segment of putting, th- putting things into a series, you have to think democracy is on a decline globally. Yeah. You have China, Chinese government hampering down on Hong Kong, making it very clear that they are in control as an authoritarian state. Mm -hmm. You have Russia invading Ukraine. You see the posturing from China. Um, I feel like it makes sense, especially as the speaker said, for the United States to be the model that it's claimed to be all these years, even as we're dealing with our January 6th commission committee, um, to show up for democracies globally. I do want to make it clear. I'm not necessarily against the measure. I just, my initial impression was, was okay. So we're really going to provoke China right now, (laughs) which like, look, China is a really interesting country, right? Like you're right. Like 
they have been suppressing democracies. Like just look at what they did to Hong Kong. And you know what? If they took over Taiwan, they do the same thing. Absolutely. And Taiwan is is a pretty um, big deal for us to be alliance to, you know, with chip manufacturing and what and strategic just positioning in general of the of the country. I my initial impression was that it was reckless because, you know, we're passing all these China competition bills, which are already, you know, um, probably getting under China's nerves. You know, we're, we're challenging them abroad every day or um, we're already challenging China a lot. I don't understand. I don't understand why we're, and I don't know, maybe this is a new strategy by the U S and I'm not necessarily against it. I would just hate for um, her going now versus in the last 25 years. I agree with that. Um, to be like, I don't know. I feel like I feel like we should have started paying attention sooner, I guess, and going there sooner. I agree with that. Instead and of now when tensions are at an all-time high. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It's not like we haven't supported Taiwan all these years, but like, why haven't we gone if this was, I don't Something know. Something so easy to do. Yeah, I mean, she's just like, I'm going. And so she goes. And that's fine. Like, we should definitely support democracy around the world. I'm just, I'm just curious, like, I'm just curious how worth it or not it is. But honestly, like, my opinion's changing as we talk about this. So, <laughs> no, I, I agree <laughs> so, with what you're saying. And I think, don't hold me to that. <laughs> I think you bring up a really good point, too, in the political discourse of people our age. One, understanding the full ramifications of this action, especially because the Chinese government has been so bolsterous um, with Pelosi's at first potential visit. And now we know actual visit. Um, But I would just like to call out the hypocrisy because we saw a lot of people in our age group who are a little bit more on the progressive end screaming at the Biden administration for going to Saudi Arabia and ignoring their human rights atrocities meanwhile nancy pelosi who is a part of the democratic party who maybe the biden administration didn't want her to do this but they didn't actively stop her is going to once again call out the human rights atrocities and do these pieces so um all that to say i think that this is going to be an interesting story to follow but um we need to recognize that it has a bigger picture than just our short one-minded thinking yeah no good points good points all around Another major international story, the United States announced the killing of Al-Qaeda leader Zawahili um, in Kabul with a drone strike. And we'll be right back. And we're back with Dangerously Likely. In a surprising twist, Joe Manchin and Senate Democrats announced a deal on a Budget Reconciliation Act that Joe Manchin had rejected only a couple weeks prior. While there are many provisions in this bill, this will be the biggest investment in the fight against climate change ever made by the U.S. if passed. So let's go through the bill, which is also known as the Inflation Reduction Act. So the Inflation Reduction Act includes $369 billion in climate and energy provisions, which is the largest ever U.S. investment in climate. He's very uh, happy about that, if you can't tell. Very happy. I'm like waving my arms everywhere. <laughs> uh, with changes designed to accelerate the build-out of renewable energy, speed up the adoption of electric vehicles, and aid in the deployment of energy efficiency technologies in disadvantaged communities. According to initial analysis by 
Rhodium Group, its passage would put the U.S. on a credible path to achieving roughly 40% emissions reduction by 2030, uh, which, you know, it's not the 50% goal that we have, but this bill will take us a lot farther along the road than we are right now. And while the bill- for context too, just to add to that piece, if we were to continue with our current policies, it would only be a reduction of 26%. So while- I'm sure individuals exactly. might feel a certain kind of way because it's not the 50%, as Caleb mentioned. This is a huge reduction from if we were to continue with business as usual. Yes. Um, and while the bill would allow for tremendous progress in tackling the climate crisis, stakeholders have voiced concerns regarding certain provisions, including those on fossil fuel leasing um, that we will go through in a second. Thank you, Manchin. Well, you know what? Compromise. <laughs> Bipartisanship. <laughs> Anyways. It's not even bipartisan. <laughs> You're right. It's just confident. It's just mansion. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, here are some uh, key climate and energy, energy policies that this bill outlines. So it would boost domestic clean energy manufacturing, providing $60 billion to accelerate clean energy manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, and more. Uh, tax credits for electric vehicles. It provides a $4,000 tax credit for consumers to uh, use to purchase um, used EVs specifically, and up to $7,500 for new electric vehicles. And eligibility for the EV tax credit would be capped to an income level of $150,000 for a single filing taxpayer and $300,000 for joint filers for new vehicles, and at $75,000 and $150,000 for used EVs. And can we like just unpack that for a little bit? Because I know, I know a lot of people are focusing so much on the fact that, and you're going to get into this, but focusing on the fact that this bill is going to elevate the corporate tax, um, the corporate tax that we have in the country. But the fact that the Democrats were able to come together and pinpoint, I know these numbers don't sound modest, but a modest income for an American in this country to do their part in being a part of our climate neutral uh, initiatives and really make sure that this credit isn't going to your wealthiest among them as the Republicans have historically cannot be understated. Like I know when you hear those numbers and you start thinking like, who do I know who's a single filer who has $150,000? That's just the cap. That's that's the cap. That's as far as it'll go. It's not going to hit and impact your Angelina Jolie's, Brad Pitt's. I don't know why they're the first people popping in my head. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's not going to allow for all these spaces, and especially as Twitter's having their fill day with the amount of emissions that Taylor Swift um, apparently allows into <laughs> the environment because of her private jet. Like these things do matter. Yeah. And, and I think what is so great about this specific provision is it really encourages uh, middle-class families to get electric vehicles, which are better for the environment. Yes. And get your Teslas, people. Get your Teslas, you know, Ford, GM, all of them. Even I've seen Hyundais. I've seen I've seen Kias that are electric that are relatively inexpensive. There is, um, this is really going to encourage people to actually change um, the car that they drive every single day. And that will really help reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions, um, especially in the long run. Uh, this bill also reduces methane emissions. It establishes a fee on excess methane emissions and offers up to $850 million in grants to industry to monitor and reduce methane emissions, which is also a really good incentive to 
reduce methane in the atmosphere because methane is way more potent than carbon dioxide. So even getting that reduced in the atmosphere um, um, quickly can help our chances of surviving climate change. Um, this bill has a new clean energy fund. It provides $27 billion to establish a new greenhouse gas reduction fund to accelerate the deployment of low carbon technologies. This fund is designed to provide low cost financing for clean energy infrastructure projects. The fund requires that at least 40% of the benefits of these investments flow to disadvantaged communities, which I kind of love that they do that. Mm -hmm. Like it really has a focus on communities that are affected by climate change the most and also have the least leverage of actually doing something about it. And it shows truly what it means to care about minoritized populations and care about inclusion. Um, it's not just a buzzword with this administration. God, I sound like I sound like I should be the press secretary for the Biden administration, <laughs> and I hate it. Um, but it it is important, right? I think that so many of our corporations and so many of our actions fall into this belief that just because you say diversity and inclusion and you post it everywhere, that it doesn't have to be embedded in your policies and how you function. Mm -hmm. And just like you highlighted, Caleb, that is a great indicator that while it might not be the inclusion act of 2022, it is focused on impacting those communities that this country has historically disadvantaged and led to uh, being communities that don't meet our standards when it comes to climate change and climate reduction or um, emission reduction. So just, yeah, it's a great, great piece. And I'm going to stop because I feel like I'm overhyping the Biden administration is giving me slight heartburn. <laughs> I don't love the Biden administration. I just, sometimes I, I do good things. The Biden administration has been interesting and I'm sure we'll do a review at some point, <laughs> but another um, report card. I, I do think that for a lot of the stuff that they have, a lot of the actions they have taken, a lot of their messaging has been very well thought out and in a lot more inclusive than I think we've really ever seen mm -hmm. um, uh, come from um, an administration in general. So, so this climate, there's a lot more climate provisions, obviously. Um, these are some of the main ones, but you know, when you're negotiating with Joe Manchin, who is very much an oil guy, <laughs> he's a coal guy, coal, coal guy, whatever. Uh, cool, cool, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, cool for this. That's about it. <laughs> so I, um, um, when you're negotiating with someone who, who likes fossil fuels in general and has definitely, um, been paid money from fossil fuel companies for a long time, uh, you're going to have to give up some stuff. And this bill has this fossil fuel leasing kind of requirement that requires the Department of Interior to conduct oil and gas lease sales on federal land each year for a decade as a prerequisite to installing any new solar or wind energy. The legislation also requires fossil fuel leasing in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska and reinstates an 80 million acre Gulf of Mexico lease sale from 2021. Consequently, the legislation guarantees continued fossil fuel leasing of more than 2 million acres onshore and 60 million acres offshore for the next decade, the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with continued fossil fuel leasing will significantly offset emissions reductions found elsewhere in the legislation. I will say, however, that most experts say that despite some of these provisions, the, um, the bill's positive greatly does outweigh um, the negatives here. And yeah. there's some interesting kind of data where 
I mean, obviously like consumers and stuff want this kind of green technology, like fossil fuels, they're not going to go away even if we have a perfect response to climate change. They're just not like oil is in a lot of products that we have. That doesn't mean we have to rely on it like we do now. That doesn't mean it has to be uh, a cause of global warming any longer. Um, But we fossil fuels aren't going to go away. And if this is part of getting us to kind of that end goal, then I'm okay with that. And something important here, um, one, to encourage listeners to always go vote, but two, to recognize the government. Um, This provision does grant the government the ability to lease. It does not mandate it. And I think that's an important caveat. The executive branch has an opportunity to lease out and approve things as it so chooses. So if these are provisions and these are things that you are concerned about, continuing to elect and vote for presidents, representatives, senators who care about climate will have a direct impact on this, specifically um, in ensuring that the executive branch, the Department of Interior, is more scrutinizing of these leases and ensuring that it's not just a free-for-all as we saw under a former administration, but really taking into consideration the weight that it'll have on the land, the weight that it'll have on our climate, and the impact that it'll have on people. But I also just want to make a point that just because the Department of Interior has to conduct lease sales on federal lands and whatnot um, for fossil fuel companies doesn't actually mean that any of that land will be sold. Um, in fact, it's happened before, you know, we, we kind of think that like, oh, it's actually going to, so there really is going to be a bunch of oil companies on federal land. That's actually not how it works all the time. And lately, um, um, it, I, I believe it's been happening a little bit more often where some of these lease sales actually just don't pan out like nobody buys them because that's not where they want to be or for whatever business reason. Um, uh, so like we can hope that like despite this provision um um being in there that that it actually won't be as bad as it could be. And even if it's bad like again like the rest of the bill greatly outweighs this. Um I don't know, Terrell, just on this climate part of the bill, what are you, what are your thoughts on it? Are you feeling how are you feeling? I'm not as excited as you. <laughs> I'm I'm just excited because let me give you the reasoning why I'm excited, okay? So when Obama was president, there was a bill passed that had, I believe, about $80 billion of climate spending in it. Mm-hmm. And think about where we are right now. It's because of that. We have electric vehicles. I mean, obviously, like, not you can't attribute everything to it, but like $80 billion of climate spending, what, a decade ago or whatever it was, um, like, it spurs industry to start it's like a domino effect, right? It starts, it spurs industry to start thinking about it and start investing in it. And all of a sudden we're where we are today Mm -hmm. because of a lot of federal action that happened while Obama was president on climate change. This is like three times that. No, four times that. Sorry, math hard. (laughs) I wasn't even going to fact check you. I was like, yeah, sounds right to me. This is over four times an investment into climate change. Think about where we're going to be in the next decade because of a bill like this. I am so excited. That's a broad assumption that we're going to live to the next decade, but I appreciate (laughs) that. Well, individually, I don't know. (laughs) I, I, I am just like, there's a lot of like, positivity to look at like ev sales 
across the country and really across the world are really are closely reaching uh, the 5% level, Mm -hmm. which doesn't seem like a lot, but history has shown that when certain cars, car sales get to 5%, they get adopted really quickly and EV sales are on the precipice of becoming like basically exploding if they haven't been already. And I am very, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just excited. Like obviously holding my breath a little bit till this thing actually passes because it hasn't yet. And we'll get to that later. Um, But I'm just this amount of investment. Like I think we sometimes underestimate or not think about the actual power that the federal government has in incentivizing basically all of us to do what they want, which I don't know, that might sound kind of weird, but with climate change, it's so vitally important. And this is really going to help us get to a place that we need to be. Absolutely. Um, well, that was that's obviously like a big part of this bill, but there's actually some other great stuff. Um, yeah, I think we should talk about healthcare and drug pricing. What do you think, Terrell? Eh. <laughs> well, okay. As you can tell, I like, <laughs> yes, this is an amazing bill. I'm very happy it's happening, but there's just so many other things happening in this world where I just... Let's just be happy about one thing. Happy that they finally got a reconciliation deal done. But at the end of the day, it's like, how are we still fighting about all of these policies and provisions? Oh, yeah. It should have happened so long ago. But at the same time, like, at least it's happening, right? True. So under the current law, Medicare is not permitted to leverage its purchasing power to negotiate lower prescription drug prices for seniors. And as a result, drugs typically cost significantly more in the United States than they do in many other countries. We all have heard the horror stories. Um, This bill would, for the first time, allow Medicare to negotiate with drug companies to bring down prescription drug prices, albeit for a subset of the most expensive drugs, unfortunately. But this act would um, also extend the life of enhanced health insurance premium subsidies for people enrolled in the Affordable Care Act plans for an additional three years. Those enhanced subsidies are set to expire at the end of this year, which meaning without this legislation, many consumers will see their insurance premiums rise. So that's a great extension. A number of House Democrats are pressing Senator Schumer to insert an additional uh, Affordable Care Act related provision to expand Medicaid coverage in states that have refused to do so. I I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but some here's some key um, health care and drug pricing policies. So Medicare drug price negotiation. Medicare would negotiate price ceilings for the 20 most expensive medications by 2029. So pharmaceutical companies that refuse to negotiate would be hit with penalties, capping seniors out-of-pocket costs. The bill would ensure Medicare enrollees pay no more than $2,000 out-of-pocket for drugs annually. That's pretty great. I mean, so much better than what it is now. Um, It ensures that drug prices don't rise faster than than inflation. The bill requires drug companies to pay rebates to the government if the price of their drugs covered by Medicare Parts B and D rise faster than inflation. Um, And then lower Medicare premiums for those in need. The bill would provide 100% premium and cost-sharing subsidies to Medicare Part D enrollees living at 150% of the federal poverty level. Presently, these subsidies are only available to those living at 135%. So it adds a little bit more of the population into that um, to really help them out with Medicare costs in general. And an important part to recognize here, when you start talking about federal poverty levels, these are rates that when you actually look at them, should be so much higher. Um, The way America still views 
Um, poverty rates is looking at food cost and comparing what a basic standard of living would be from milk, eggs, and bread, essentially. So when you start getting at the 150% um, rate for an individual, that number is barely over $25,000 a year annually. Um, so I know as you start hearing numbers and you start hearing things of, well, if they're already 100% over the poverty level, do they really need these types of subsidies? They clearly have a job to some extent. These are still individuals who are just trying to make it by. Um, it's funny too to mention, um, I was talking to a colleague recently and with all of the um, Roe v. Wade and Dobbs decision things, she highlighted that if she were to be carrying a child right now, she would be under the poverty rate um, and be eligible for so many subsidies. But because she has a full-time job that makes a certain amount of money, she's closer to the 200 to 225% of the federal poverty level that um, phases her out of these necessities when the cost of living, as we all know, is just so high. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is obviously like Biden's whole plan, Build Back Better plan, had so much more in it. But like, I think everyone, or at least at least if you're if you've been paying attention, and I think the Biden administration knew this too, that it would be they would not get everything they wanted. And I gotta say, like, like between this bill and the infrastructure bill, like they've gotten a lot of good stuff in here. And you know, we're not gonna always get everything, but if we're voting for people who supports this kind of stuff, these kind of issues, like, like negotiating drug prices down, are you kidding me? That's a winning issue. Um, uh, climate change. Most Americans believe climate change is real. Um, I think that's going to turn into a winning issue if it's not already. I, there's, there's a lot in here that is just so vitally important to our society. And um, if we keep electing people who support these kind of things, um, we're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. <laughs> um, so make sure you vote in the midterms. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, anyways, a couple last points on the healthcare part. Um, it'll reduce insurance bills that enhance premium assistance that is for the ACA that was set to expire at the end of 2022 is now extended uh, to 2025. And we don't, we didn't have details at the time of this podcast, but um, Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate majority leader, has said that Senate Democrats, quote, will be adding things on insulin to the reconciliation proposal, unquote. So hopefully there's a quite a bit of a, a price reduction on insulin as well added to this. Um, but now moving on to my favorite part, because, of course, <laughs> I'm a nerd who cares a lot about taxes. But also, this is one, the only reason that Manchin signed on to this agreement. And two, something that should have happened so long ago, like this should yes. be something we shouldn't even be here because the Republicans shouldn't have been able to pass their tax reform under the Trump administration that allowed for all of this to happen. So yeah, this, this is actually like, I, I think this is a really good part of the bill, even if um, the climate parts more my taste. <laughs> um, so the inflation reduction act would raise significant revenue, not only by lowering prescription drug prices under Medicare, but also by limiting a major tax loophole, forcing giant corporations to pay what they owe and giving the Internal Revenue Service more tools to go after wealthy tax evaders. So here are some key policies in this tax um, portion of the bill. 15% minimum tax on the biggest corporations. The bill would impose a 15% minimum tax on corporations with more than $1 billion in profits. 
that's minimum. Um, restricting tax breaks for private equity and hedge fund managers, the bill would increase the amount of time investment fund managers must hold their investment uh, funds in order to qualify for the so-called carried interest loophole. By limiting this tax break, the bill will force more investment managers to pay what they owe in taxes. Um, and then lastly, uh, the bill allows the IRS to pursue wealthy tax evaders. The bill would provide the IRS with $80 billion to enforce tax laws already on the books, a provision that is expected to bring in an extra $124 billion in revenue, according to the Congressional Budget Office. All in all, um, this bill actually is supposed to reduce the deficit as long as everything, as as the bill is, uh, the phase it is in right now, it yeah. should reduce the federal deficit by, I, I believe, $300 billion, which is pretty significant. <laughs> pretty significant. Absolutely. Um, so, Terrell, why don't you tell us about why you're being a nerd on these taxes? Well, there's multiple reasons. I think the biggest is the context that um, I don't know if you all recall, but earlier in the this summer, we mentioned on the podcast that the G20 met to discuss um, corporate tax rates and recognizing that many states, um, states, countries, however you want to refer to them, have various different tax safe havens, if you will, that allow for these corporations to aggressively target specific countries and utilize them as a safe haven while still doing most of their bidding and actions in countries like America, the United Kingdom and France. And after much back and forth, Greece and other countries who had lower corporate tax rates came to an agreement of this 15%. So when we were initially going into this reconciliation conversation, that was the goal to at least raise the corporate tax rate to 15% to signal to the international community that the United States was truly on board and would be following these pressures um, to, to really coincide as the 20 biggest economies in the world. One important caveat is that according to Manchin, while we are seeing this raise, he claims that this is, this is not to impact offshore tax rates which can still be negotiated and lowered. Um, but this is a positive step forward to kind of reinforcing our platform on the global stage and showing a real true recognition that unfeathered capitalism is not working for the average American or the average person in any country. Um, I mean, you look at the United Kingdom, they are going through some of the worst divisions and income that they've seen in generations. And they're having real true conversations about what it means to have a living wage, how they can continue to support their um, healthcare system, all of these pieces. So obviously I'm geeking out over that. Also recognizing that the IRS has been unable to truly do its job for decades because of underfunding. This bill will finally allow for the IRS to kind of step up and be more thoughtful and more forceful in ensuring that in ensuring that it can effectively audit and review individuals who have very complex and difficult taxes and ensuring that they're not taking advantage of multiple tax loopholes that are in our current system but also aren't just flatly not reporting income that they have or finding different ways to save money. All of this is a huge positive to kind of 
lessen this social economical gap that we're seeing in the country, but also to allow for our government to start getting some funding back. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about this. You know, when we talk about corporations should pay their fair share of taxes, like we all have to pay our taxes. Why are they getting away with not paying taxes in this 15% minimum tax on the biggest corporations? It's just so important to that um, idea of fairness. <laughs> like yeah. if we're all like paying taxes sucks, but if we're all going to do it, we all better be doing it, right? Like hopefully individuals, some individuals shouldn't be able to get away with not doing it. Um, and yeah, the IRS just hasn't been able to uh, uh, really actually do its jobs. It just doesn't ha- has not had the resources in years to do its full job. And now that we're giving it that ability, I'm just really, I'm really excited for that. You mentioned something about this, this, um, these tax provisions actually put us back on kind of the world stage in terms of a leader on the front of actually taxing corporations. And I got to say, the climate part of this bill, I think, also puts us back into the leadership position of climate around the country, too, especially if it passes, um, because we made our own commitments. And if we didn't pass anything, there, I don't know, depending on the midterms, there might not have been a chance to do some of the stuff that this bill can do. Um, and I think with the cop, uh, uh, I believe 27, mm-hmm. um, coming up in Egypt in November, like it's important for us to be able to put on a showing of, Hey, this is what we're doing. And we're trying to lead the effort to stop climate change. And, uh, I think it gives us more leverage to get other countries to do their part too. Um, so I think to end this segment, we should talk about where things stand right now. You mean why media syndicates are going after Christian cinema instead of just <laughs> celebrating the fact that this is happening and trying to educate people on what the next steps are, why we're going to see a bunch of amendments pop up and see a 24 hour space of just absolute chaos? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's get into the con- <laughs> let's get into the context of that very loaded statement, Terrell. So <laughs> Senator Christian Cinema of Arizona still has actually not signed off on the bill. Um, and of course, Democrats in the 50-50 Senate need all 50 Democrats in the Senate to pass this thing, as Republicans are all unsurprisingly united in opposition, um, which I don't want to give a pass to Republicans. But, you know, as, a, as the audience, I think you all know where we stand on that. Um, I we were kind of talking about this off record. I genuinely don't think that they would have announced a deal with Manchin without having cinema pretty much there, too. I feel like, I mean, obviously anything can happen, but it, I, I don't know. I, it, it, would, it would be weird to me for them to announce something like this and then not actually have the votes. I, yes, I, fair. I, I will say, before, before you respond, I will say that she did sign off on the prescription drug stuff, um, which is good, but there is a tax provision about the carried interest loophole that she was originally against. Mm-hmm. Um, and now she's not saying anything to media who is just so desperate to have which her she answer. she never does. And that's like that's my important part here. Which she never does. She never speaks to the press. It's always been just kind of how she functions. But one other big reason why she's not speaking out really about this is she's been engaged in conversations with Murkowski and Kane to introduce the Reproductive Freedom for All Act in the Senate, which would codify Roe in the country. So I get very frustrated with media syndicates, and it's funny saying that because I know we're technically a media outlet, 
but <laughs> I get very frustrated because the misogyny is so clear in our narratives. Manchin will say nothing and torpedo a bill in a heartbeat, and he'll get a week of fanfare. But cinema will actively work with Chuck Schumer, will work with other Democrats, will work with other Republicans to find a deal and build a deal, and that never gets lifted up. We have been talking for months about why the Republican Party will never support codifying Roe v. Wade. And granted, right now, I don't know how many votes she has. Knowing that Murkowski is at least at the table with them is a huge piece and probably worth a little bit more time than talking about reconciliation, where she would be the only Democrat Democrat to vote no. And I highly doubt she would want to be put in that space because um, she does care about her political future. But also, we don't need to know what she has to say. Like, it... I think it's going to be fine. It'll be fine. I think I think it will. I, I I don't know. I would be look. I'm I'm holding my breath until this thing passes. Like it's not done until Biden signed it, right? But at the same time, like I think you would be, I would be a bit surprised if this whole bill tanked because of cinema. Absolutely, I'd be surprised. I I will I will say though for our listeners and individuals who might watch. The festivities. A part of reconciliation is it goes into this votorama, if you will. Oh yes, I'm about to get there. Actually, yeah. well, I was just gonna. Ouch! I was just gonna say that you might see a couple amendments come from cinema that might rub you the wrong way and may very well pass if she can somehow pull, yep, the entire Republican Party <laughs> over and one Democrat. Um, <laughs> so it's important to recognize that yes, the story isn't over. You might see her try to stand up for issues that she's very passionate about, like that carry um, that carrying provision that you highlighted, but odds of it passing are slim because the Democrats are probably going to by and large vote against her on it. And the Republicans don't have any appetite to show any support for this reconciliation bill whatsoever, but at least she can walk away with the political victory of saying I tried. So Understanding politics will be very important for the next week or two as we get into this, but I'll let you explain Votorama more in depth, Caleb. Well, I, I don't know if it's that in depth. I, would, I was just the process um, going forward right at the time of this recording is that we need Senator Kristen Sinema to support it. And then once we have all 50 Democrats, which we, we may already have, and it's just not been announced, um, the Senate parliamentarian must check and sign off on the provisions of the bill. Uh, basically, since Democrats have to use a budget reconciliation measure to pass this, they have to adhere to budgetary rules in which each provision has to have a direct change to government revenue or spending. And then once that's done, hopefully, um, I know Manchin said that the provisions were carefully written to adhere to those rules. Um, so hopefully we're not... He said that the last time they wrote a reconciliation bill and half of it got tear- torn apart. Now, only like a couple big things. That's it. I mean, one of the biggest pieces was that's how they were going to provide a path for citizenship for dreamers. And it got ripped right out of oh. reconciliation by the in, parliamentarian. And minimum wage, too. Exactly. So um, he might not understand the rules as well as he thinks he does. Well, I mean, I, also don't I like think him. some things are reached. Though. I'm also biased. I do not like Chuck Schumer as a leader. There's no love lost between him <laughs> and I. Um, uh, but... Uh, so hopefully we don't see a lot uh, taken away from this bill. Um, but after that is happening, which I believe is happening uh, right now, um, the Senate will then go through a voterama in which all senators can propose amendments with no time limit. 
which usually culminates in a very lengthy time period of intentionally fraught amendments from the opposing party that do not make it into the final bill. Manchin has said, I might be okay with some Republican amendments. You know, he's leaving the door open. Maybe Cinema will too. I don't know if there's anything that's going to happen here that's going to severely take away from the bill. I mean, even if they agree with a couple things. Yeah, I was going to say there's going to be an amendment from McConnell. There's always an amendment from McConnell that is essentially crafted in a way to say upon passage of this bill, everything's null and void. Essentially, that's going to fail. There'll also probably be a lot of attempts to do some sunset clauses on some of these provisions so that the money has to be spent by a certain amount of time to ensure sure. that it's being fiscally responsible. But if it's not spent, it goes back to the coffers. Yep. All of these things. That one may pass because I can see a cinema mansion duo saying like, ah, sure. Inflation, ah. But also I can see a couple of <laughs> Republicans saying, I don't want to support anything from this bill. I don't want to even give them the opportunity to make it a win. So important for our listeners to know, we are about to see a lot of politics and this bill probably won't be voted on until like 3 a.m. whatever day they actually bring to the floor, just like the last reconciliation. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, and then honestly, the last step is uh, after you get past that, the House needs to pass the bill. And That's at this moment I mean. in time, the House will if it gets there. Also an important piece to add that was breaking news recently. Um, the second in command for the Republican side of the Senate, Senator Cornyn, was diagnosed with a test positive for COVID-19. So mm. with that, the Democrats actually can afford to have one no vote if they are able to get this bill on the floor in the next week and a half. That's true, but none of them can get COVID. <laughs> I mean, even if one of them gets COVID, we're back to a 50-50. Yeah, just don't make it two. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, do you have any final thoughts on this uh, this bill? I'm glad they're doing something. I'm, Me too. I'm glad that, and I think we all knew this, the, the Democrats recognized they had to get something done. And I do think there's some fun in it that McConnell was caught square-footed, not aware that there were still negotiations actively happening when he threatened to tank the chip bill. Um, and instead of being the statesman that he normally likes to project himself as he decided to be a toddler and take some very important bills and it's done more harm to the GOP than good. Um, they can't say that them telling veterans um, who are victims of um, pit burns, we're not going to cover you with insurance because the Democrats lied to us is a fair policy or a fair choice. So I think all in all, this was a good win for the Democrats. Yeah, yeah, the Democrats actually use politics to win for once. I'm 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 happy. I mean, obviously like it's when it's passed, it's passed. So we got to get through all this first. And you know, I guess anything could happen, but um I I'm very excited for this to pass. I like it'll be good. It'll be this this will be a good bill and I think it's a good time right before the midterms. Um Passing things and getting things done actually doesn't, believe it or not, translate as much um, to voters unless you're like actually messaging it correctly. Um, but overall, this will this will be a really good bill for the country, I believe, um, if it's passed. So, with that, we'll be right back.
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerouslylikely at gmail.com. There's so many apps. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. Even drop a like if you're listening. How about you take us on a tangent, Caleb? Yeah, so first thing as of today that we're recording this, which is Tuesday, as always. Um, the Department of Justice has just announced a lawsuit against Idaho's abortion ban that's triggering, uh, pretty much saying that it could violate federal law um, through Medicare uh, with uh, by ban. If you're banning abortion, sometimes you need an abortion to actually save a life. Yes. And that's a provision in Medicare that you have to do something to save a life. Um, so good. <laughs> Debatable still. I, look, I think we should, I think the Biden administration has got to do everything they can to, uh, to preserve women's rights in this country. And I think this is part of it. I just hope that this does not lead to a push by the conservative movement in Idaho to just try to get rid of Medicaid. That is my only concern. That's true. Good point. <laughs> um, and then, but what I, what I really, what's really bothering me these days is actually a headline I just saw today um, um, from Axios that reads Minnesota Dems are leading calls for Biden replacement. Uh, so there's two members of Congress from Minnesota um, that have become the quote most prominently uh, or prominent federally elected Democrats to say they do not want President Biden to run for a second term in 2024. Now, my issue with this is like, if Biden doesn't run or isn't replaced, I don't really give a fuck. He's, first of all, he is going to say that he's going to run right now, and he could make a decision in two years if he is or not. Look that's at, just how it's going to go. Look at Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah, but that, but that politically, that's just how it's going to go. He's not going to tell everybody right now he's not going to run. We're literally three months before a, a very important midterm election. Why? What are we doing why are we making this a headline, Democrats? Like, mm, don't blame Democrats. Blame the progressives. Eh, okay. <laughs> I, I just, I'm just. It doesn't. If we want to win, we shouldn't be distracting people with will he or won't he bullshit. He'll make that decision when he gets there. I don't really care if some of y'all think he's too old. I don't really care if y'all think he's bad. I don't really care if y'all think he should run again. That is a conversation to have. After we're done focusing on winning the midterms, this is so unproductive right now. It's literally so unproductive and it, it's been popping up for the last month or so. And it just shouldn't even be something that we're talking about. Um, should it be, should we have an actual debate about, about how Biden's done and if we like him as our president, as Democrats? Absolutely. Yes. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying right now we really, if we want to get more good stuff done, for the most part, Biden's been pretty on board with a lot of the stuff we want. And winning midterms is how we are going to do that instead of talking about this shit. So how, why don't we save it for like in five months instead of right now? Actually, I'm going to use this as my tangent. Um, so I'm just going to save you from telling me to take you on a tangent because I agree. And the only thing that I, I want to call out and push on is you can still critique him. <laughs> like... Absolutely. You critiquing him does not mean that he can't run for president again. But also, I do want you to critique him because I do want the more progressive side of the party to really tell me how he's been the worst president. How has he been so awful? Um, 
because at the end of the day, I think a lot of them recognize that it doesn't fit with their, it doesn't fit with their version of events. He didn't pick the Supreme Court. You all allowed for Donald Trump to be elected president and put up three Supreme Court justices who were willing to completely gut and get rid of Roe v. Wade. And now you want him to go out to the greatest extreme, but he recognizes that if he were to announce a public health emergency for abortions, Texas is going to challenge it. And Texas is going to strip that power away from the executive branch. Now, when he actually needs to use it, he no longer has it. Um He's the most progressive president we've ever had. And that's just a fact. You can't argue against this. So I really, and this is coming from someone who I know in my heart of hearts, I have a bias towards age to some extent, but I really think younger progressives need to get their heads out of their asses and stop feeling that just because he's old, he's the worst possible option (laughs) because he's actually done a lot of really great things. You know what I really enjoy? Not getting a breaking news alert every single day from the White House because the president of the United States did something stupid. I appreciate that he's returned us back to a sense of normalcy. He's brought back diplomacy. He is doing his best to find opportunities to move this country forward, recognizing he's dealing with an extremist party. Like he understands politics and geopolitics. He is a good president and very similar to Carter. I think he's going to be remembered later in life as one of the better presidents we've ever had. So yeah, I agree with you. I I'm very frustrated and annoyed that this is the context that we're having, but I really do challenge a lot of people to take a step back and say why they think he's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like criticizing is fine. Um, Having this conversation is fine. I'm sure we'll have this conversation at some point. It's just very unproductive when we're trying to win elections right now. Um, So let's just wait till after that, after we win, (laughs) let's put our energy into uh, how we're going to win and uh, winning <laughs> because <laughs> if we don't win, like then Biden's presidency isn't really, I mean, it's going to be just stalled a lot. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. It's gonna, his agenda is going to be stalled and the policies that I'm assuming a lot of our listeners want to happen will not happen unless we win the midterms. Like it's an interesting thought experiment to talk about this, but let's have this conversation after um when it's more productive to have, right? Yeah. Or if you're going to have this conversation, also own that you have a lot of biases because I'm fine with him not running, but I do think Kamala Harris should run for president. And I know a lot of people who are very much anti-Biden are also anti-Kamala Harris. We'll talk about that. And then they have no reason behind it other than she's just not good. So let's make it a Christmas special. (laughs) Instead of uh, before midterm special. I hear it here. (laughs) Anyways, that's our show. (laughs) I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Terrell Couch. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.